Our scripture passage today is Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to 14. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not wisdom that you it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of, of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we give you thanks that you are faithful to speak to us. We are not, not left in the dark, groping about in this world, but God has revealed himself to us through his word. So we now pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see it, that having seen it, we might be a bit wiser, a bit deeper, a bit more mature, our character deepened than before we came in. We pray that through this, you would fashion us to be more like Christ, in whom is all of our hope. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1888, there was a chemist named Alfred, and to his shock, he opened the newspaper one morning to read his own obituary. See, what happened was that the newspaper had made a mistake, and his brother Ludwig had died, but they got the wrong brothers mixed up, and so they got the wrong obituaries. And so Alfred got that morning the opportunity that perhaps most of us would want, which is what are people going to say after we're gone, right? Don't you ever wonder what will people say when you're dead, when, when it's the time of your funeral? I always think to myself, it's the one moment where everyone's going to say nice things for three hours, and you're not even going to be there to hear it. So you so badly wish you could hear what will people say when you're done. Well, Alfred on this morning got that opportunity. He opened the newspaper, and you can imagine it was to his shock and to his dismay to read that the obituary condemned Alfred. In fact, Alfred was the inventor of dynamite. And here's what the obituary said. It said, the merchant of death is dead. The man who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before died yesterday. 
And there it was, in his hands, in black and white, that the legacy he would leave behind, what he would be known for throughout time and by people, would be death and destruction. Well, that did something to Alfred. It prompted in him this desire that he was determined that he was going to leave a better legacy than that. He was not going to be known for death and destruction. And so it prompted him to invest a great deal of his wealth towards honoring those who work for peace. In fact, he decided then and there he was going to invest his riches to find some way to honor and recognize throughout the world those who work for peace. He would be known for peace, he determined, and not for death and destruction. Well, Alfred's full name is Alfred Bernard Nobel. And if you know trivia, maybe you know he was the inventor of dynamite, but undoubtedly, you know the prize that was left after his name. Nobel, the Nobel Peace Prize, was named after this chemist, all based on an early obituary that he had read. Well, in some sense, that's what our passage this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is giving us the opportunity to do. It's giving you a chance to think of the end before it's too late, to consider what will your obituary read? What will be said about you? What words will be spoken over you to think of the end in such a way that it might shape and change your present, that it might impact how you live right now, to ask yourself questions like, what kind of legacy will I leave behind? When my time comes, what will my obituary read? What will people say at my funeral? Will it be one of those things where they have to search for good things to say? And everybody's wondering, who must this person be talking about? Or, or will it read the way that I hope it will read? I, I think the preacher of Ecclesiastes would say to us, those are good questions to ask. Those are wise questions to ask yourself. Because if you ask them now, it will help you to live wisely and well in light of the end. Thinking of the end will help you to live wisely and well in the present. Remember, Ecclesiastes is a book of literature for wisdom, right? In the, in the Bible, it's included in the wisdom literature, meaning that if you receive the message of this book, if it works its way down into your heart, if it massages its way down into your soul, then you will be wiser and live better as a result of this book. Now, Having said that, we already know the preacher of Ecclesiastes has warned us of the vanity of wisdom, meaning that even if you have wisdom, it won't answer all the questions. You could be smarter than anyone. You could have more degrees than a thermometer, and it won't take the hevel of life away. It won't take the frustrations of life away. It won't answer every question that you want it to answer. In the end, the preacher has already told us, don't you know, the fool gets put in the coffin, and so does the wise one. Cemeteries don't exempt wise people from being laid there. Everybody, the fool and the wise one, will die. And so wisdom can't save you. Only God can. Only the one beyond the sun can save those under the sun. But since there is a God beyond the sun, he can bring meaning to this otherwise meaningless life. He can bring a point to this otherwise pointless life. And if you're going to have a life with a point, if you're going to have a meaningful life, then the preacher knows it requires wisdom. You need wisdom to live this life wisely and well. And one of the things you're going to see in Ecclesiastes 7 is that one of the things that God sovereignly uses to make us wise people, 
to fashion us with wisdom is adversity, difficulty, problems, pain. That often adversity and difficulty and problems and pain is what God uses to fashion us now into the people we hope to be in the end. That if you hope to have a good obituary, it will not be without problems and pain, adversity, difficulty, and struggle now that fashion you into that kind of a person. It's sort of like the parable of the butterfly. Have you ever heard the parable of the butterfly? There's this man who's looking at this cocoon and he's seeing this butterfly emerge from the cocoon. And the parable goes, he sees this little creature and it's struggling through this tiny hole to make its way out of the cocoon. And it's, it's writhing, it seems like it's in pain, it's great energy. And so this man tries to help the butterfly out by slitting that hole just a little bit bigger. And when it does, the parable goes, that out plops this creature. No struggle, no difficulty, but also not formed, not fully finished. The wings not strengthened, the liquid not drained as it ought to have been. And now this thing is doomed to an existence of dragging along on the floor rather than spreading its wings and flying. And the parable goes, it's through that pain and through that process that this creature was to be transformed to what it was supposed to be. So likewise, Ecclesiastes would have us know it is often through the process of adversity and difficulty and struggle that God fashions caterpillars into butterflies, that God fashions sinners into saints, that God takes foolish people and makes them wise who have good obituaries in the end. And so chapter 7, the preacher turns to give us a number of proverbs aimed to give us wisdom. Here's how it begins, 7 verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, at least the first half of this is a no-brainer. The second half, not so much. But the first half, a good name is better than precious ointment. Your preacher, having grown up in an Indian home, is helpful to you at this point. Because having grown up in an Eastern home, having grown up with the honor-shame culture, this first section makes perfect sense to me. I could tell you all day about how having a name that matters, having a name that's good, having a reputation, having an honorable name matters. It's better than anything else, right? Uh, being well thought of and not being despised matters. Uh, it would almost be like the preacher saying, what would be the point? What would be the point if you had all the riches we talked about in chapter 5 and 6? What would it be the point if you had all the finest stuff, the most precious ointment, the most expensive things that money could buy if you don't have a good name? The preacher would almost say it like this. What's the point of you wearing the finest perfume if your reputation stinks? What's the point of you being adorned with the most nice fragrance if when you walk into a room, people are repelled by your presence? What's the point of having precious ointment if you don't have a good name? No, a good name is better than precious ointment. But you know something? You don't know a man's reputation, a man's name, a man's character, what will be thought of him in the end. You don't know that by the day that he's born. The day of birth is great, but, but it doesn't do anything for knowing what a man will be about. Right? You could stare into a bassinet, and the day of birth is a day of great joy. 
But looking into a bassinet, this baby is bouncing with endless potential and possibility. You look into a bassinet, and that child could be the next Mother Teresa. That child could be the next Einstein. But that child could also be the next Hitler or the next Stalin. I mean, that's exactly the point. The day of birth doesn't tell you anything about that. And so a name may be given at birth, but a name is earned through life. And it takes the last day to reveal what you don't know on the first day. That's why, at least if you're thinking through wisdom for life, death and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Because here, here's the thing. The day a baby is born, but if you want to learn something about life, if you want to glean something, if you want to be schooled in wisdom, then it will serve you better to read an obituary than a birth certificate. Reading an obituary will do something to your soul that a birth certificate can't. He's not being gloomy. He carries this thought on in verse 2. Look at what he says. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The house of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now again, at first you want to go, what is the preacher talking about? How is a house of mourning better than a house of feasting? How is a, a room full of people weeping over a lost loved one better for you than a people laughing over a great meal? How is sorrow better than laughter? How does sadness of face produce gladness of heart? Why is it that the wise would find themselves in the house of mourning while fools are the ones that are in the house of mirth? And yet, when you think about what the preacher is saying, as you think it down, as you think it through, it begins to make sense. You see, when it comes to wisdom, he's saying, going to a funeral will do more in your soul than going to a birthday party. To become a deeper, more formed, uh, a more character, the kind of person you want to be in the end, there's something that a funeral does to you that a birthday party can't. There's something that mourning does that feasting can't. Going to a house of mourning will do something to your soul that going to a house of feasting, going to a house party can't. For example, I've been to birthday parties. If you've been to birthday parties or gatherings where, for example, Pastor Binu is at, undoubtedly you will have played his stupid question game. Have you ever been around Binu? The brother can't sound, take silence, and so he'll fill the silence with some kind of question. And so he's going to ask you, if you were on death row, what was your final meal going to be? Or if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? Would you rather be punched by Mike Tyson or tackled by Ray Lewis or kicked by Bruce Lee? By the way, that is a real question. I'm not making that up. That's the kind of stuff you're going to think about at a get-together with Pastor Binu. Now here, while that's happening... I've never heard that question and then thought to myself, you know what? I wonder how my soul is doing with God. Right? He, his question has never made me go, I wonder what kind of husband I am in this season of my life. I wonder how the kids will remember me. My life is short. Am I making a count? When I'm thinking about Bruce Lee kicking me, maybe that. I would go, will, will my life be okay in the end? I, am I prepared to die? Right? Here, that never happens. I'm too busy laughing and having a good time and being silly, as 
is good and fine to do. But here's the preacher's point. The preacher would say to you, listen, he is not against you having joy. Do you hear his refrain over and over and over again? And we'll hear it again in the coming chapters. There is nothing better under the sun than to eat your bread and to drink with gladness, to do your work with great joy, to have relationships with people you love. These are gifts from God. The preacher is not against any of that. But the preacher is simply saying to you this. I have thrown many parties in my day. Remember Solomon chapter 2? Solomon throws a party, 15 to 20,000 people show up. I have thrown many good parties in my day, but here's what Solomon's saying. It's at the funerals where my soul grew. There was something about that moment that made me deeper, fashioned my character, shaped me to go from caterpillar to butterfly. If you want to learn wisdom, Solomon's saying, listening to the message of a coffin will do more than the message of a bassinet or a cradle. There's something to that. And I have to tell you, I could testify to this, and maybe some of you can as well. In just the few weeks uh, since we began Ecclesiastes, you can just think through the number of people who have loved ones who have died in this congregation alone. I mean, Ecclesiastes got us thinking about this, and I could tell you the number of conversations I've had now with loved ones who since we've begun Ecclesiastes just a few weeks ago have buried loved ones. And I can tell you there's something about that. I can tell you, I can testify to you that the preacher is right because I, I sat with Sabu in his kitchen the day after he buried his mom, just a few weeks ago. And I can tell you that conversation, we talked through the brevity of life. Sabu and I talked and, and Shibu was there and our families were there. And, and as we talked, we recounted to one another, you know, this season of life we find ourselves in at least the folks in my generation or my age. It was almost like a decade ago, we were constantly being invited to engagement parties and weddings. And then a few years after that, it seemed like we were bumping into our peers at first birthdays of your firstborn. And now it feels like every time I'm bumping into peers that I grew up with, it's because it's at another funeral of another parent of another one of ours that has passed. And it feels like this is what we're in line for for the next decade or so. And sitting there, you talk through how short life is and what matters in life. And if it's gone like that, here's the things that counts. Here's what it means to relate to your parents. Because before you know it, it'll all be done. And I can tell you, something deepened, even if it be just an inch, at Sabu's kitchen table that hadn't in birthday parties or hadn't at festivals. Or I can tell you of listening to Dennis speak at his father's funeral just a few weeks ago. As he stood up there, I, I heard the brother say something that I hope I will never forget. He put it so well. He was reflecting on his father's life and what that means for us. And, and he described life, he said it this way. He said, you know, I think about your life and you go, you blink once and you're sort of just a child. You have your whole life ahead of you. You blink again and before you know it, you're a young man, the prospect of career and family and all of that in front of you. You blink again and you're a middle-aged man. And you get one more blink, and then it'll all be over. And he described life as, as this series of sort of four blinks, and then it's done. And something deepened in my soul hearing that. Or I could tell you hearing Daniel and Freddie or, or Blessy as they've walked through loved ones as well. I've heard these brothers say things like, you know what I've realized? 
Nothing matters but living for Jesus Christ. In the end, all that matters is living for Christ. And I'm telling you, that's a lesson learned, if you'll hear it, that the house of mourning can provide, that the house of feasting never can. Solomon's saying, the preacher's saying, if you want to be fashioned into, in the end, being the kind of person you want to be, that God wants you to be, God often uses hard, unexpected things to wake you up to reality. The passage is simply saying, death is a preacher. And if you listen to his sermon, it can deepen you, mature you, grow you. That a wise person will go to a funeral and undoubtedly at some point, when they're at the funeral, a wise person will think to themselves, soon enough that will be me. And that question has a power to start making you think about what matters in life. It, it has a power to give you perspective. What am I using my life towards? What am I spending my life on? And will it be, is it for things that I will ultimately regret? It has a power to make you things about, think about relationships that you have and how short these things are. Grudges that you're holding, how quickly life will go. There's a power that this moment has if we'll hear it. Listen, the preacher's not being morbid. It just sounds that way because we live in a culture that is so determined to be sort of escapist when it comes to death. We're so determined to never think about it. And this is why the scriptures won't let us do that. And it's not just because Ecclesiastes, Solomon's just having a bad day. No, if you read Psalm 90, Moses, perhaps the oldest psalm there is, has this great verse. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Right? Teach us to number our days, that they're quick and short, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Here's what he's saying. Hard things like funerals, they're sovereignly used by God to take caterpillars and make them butterflies. But here's the, another one. You know what else God uses? Not just hard things. He also uses hard words. Look at verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. He's saying, you know, if God's going to fashion you into the person you want to be at the end, and if you keep the end in mind, not only will you go through hard things that God will use, like funerals, but God will also use hard words to fashion you, to shape you. This Friday, I was with Pastor Binu, and we went to Virginia to an Acts 29 conference. And when we were there, Pastor Matt Cruz, the pastor from Seven Mile Road, Boston, who helped plant us, he preached. And he preached a sermon on the necessity of Christians, particularly pastors, having to have hard conversations. I almost wish I could just hit play, sit down, and have you listen, because it would be all that needs to be said on this verse. In fact, it was so cutting to the heart that Binu and I had to take a walk around the building afterwards just to pray and respond to God having heard from him. But here's his point. If I could boil down what Matt said that I heard this week that shaped me so much, what the preacher is saying, it's simply this. It's the willingness to speak and hear hard words that God uses to form us and fashion us to be the people we want to be in the end. Hard words are going to be required if you want to become the person you want to be when your obituary is read. 
Hard words is what God uses. Hard words is what God uses to make soft hearts. Soft words produce hard hearts. Hard words produce soft hearts. Hard words, though, wisely spoken, right? It is the wise rebuke of the wise that makes the heart soft. This is why Solomon in the Proverbs will say, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, the wounds of a friend are faithful. It's almost contradictory. It's almost a paradox, but there it is. Your friend is going to wound you at times, but those wounds are going to be faithful. And all of us could testify. That's exactly what God often does. I'll give you an example. 18 years ago, I was a freshman in college. I'm not very old, but that feels a long time ago to me. 18 years ago, I was a freshman in college. And if I could tell you something about myself in college, I was always a very good test taker. What that means is I didn't have to study hard and I could get a good grade. I wouldn't learn the material, I wouldn't be very educated, but I'd have a very good grade. And so I went through my first semester and with little effort, I aced all my classes. And so that set in me, second semester was going to be even worse. I skipped all my classes because I knew I could get good grades without trying. And it didn't work, by the way, my GPA plummeted. But in my second semester, an older friend sent me a letter. 18 years later, I still have his letter. I'm a freshman in college. Here's what my friend wrote to me, just so you get an idea. He said, hi, Jay. This is going to be one of those stern letters you don't want to read, but please read it anyway. Otherwise, I will, and then I will leave that part out. Ajay, you are a freshman, and you should be pulling off a very high 3 or 4.0 GPA. I know this is attainable for you. You've been gifted with a talent, but don't put it to waste. There is no reason you should be skipping on sociology and macroeconomics every day. I can understand the occasional skip here and there, but you have basically made it the norm to skip all of your classes. Honestly, Ajay, in three years from now, when you don't really have much of an education, you may have a high GPA, you'll blame SUNY Albany for not teaching you anything, but in reality, it was you who didn't want to learn. You have the ability to go to grad school on a free ride or pretty close to it if you play your cards right. Speaking of playing cards, Ajay, why do you need to play every night? There's a game called 28 that Indians play, and I used to play it for hours every night. Do you realize that you are now not only going to class, but discouraging others from going to class as well? When your friend can't get into business school because he was screwing around with you or doesn't have the grades to get the internship or the job that he needs, he can thank you. You really are wasting your time by cheating yourself out of an education. Always looking for the shortcut and easy road in life doesn't quite cut it when all is said and done. You need to discipline yourself a lot more. What's true in the natural is true in the spiritual. There will not always be people around you to tell you to study, to do this or to do that. That will be the true mark of whether you are still a boy or have become a man. When you've reached the point where you do things for yourself, not concerned with the immediate picture, attending to your desires and appetites for today, but look forward to the greater schemes of life. If I didn't care about your future, I wouldn't be concerned with what you do now. The steps you take today will pave the road for tomorrow. In his grace, and my friend signed that letter. 18 years. And I can tell you, that letter did something to my soul that sitting around at 2 a.m. cackling with my freshman friends did not do. Because God wisely uses hard words to fashion soft hearts. And in the end, you will not be the person you want to be unless you are willing to receive into your life the wise rebuke of hard words. And so a question for us would be, are you open to correction? Are you teachable? Are you humble? When needed, 
Will you give your ear and your heart to rebuke? Do you invite that from others? Do you have a community of people who could do that for you? It's almost as if the preacher is saying, if good words are going to be spoken about you when you die, then you have to be open to hearing hard words while you live. Because this is the means that God seems to use to fashion us to who we want to be. You wouldn't think it, but when it comes to wisdom, a funeral is better than a party. You wouldn't think it, but when it comes to wisdom, having someone rebuke you is better than having a fool to laugh with you. Now, God sovereignly uses these things to fashion us. The section that we're looking at up to verse 14 ends with a few more proverbs about wisely living. And the preacher simply wants to remind us that wisdom is good, but it's not indestructible. It's not impervious to being corrupted. In verse 7, he'll say, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrects, corrupts the heart. Verse 9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. He simply wants you to know, look, even the wise can be led astray. But if you take the whole of what he's saying, I think the preacher wants to say to you, keep in mind that the shortcuts gained from bribery the quick passes that come from corruption, the knee-jerk impulsive reactions that come from a, a, a fuse that's easily and quickly lit, none of this keeps the end in mind, the long view in mind. Oh, patience, the long view, the end thought of from the beginning, temperance, wisdom, that's what he's calling you to. Keep the end in mind, that day in view. In fact, in verse 8, he says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient is spirit is better than the proud in spirit, right? Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. You know what he's saying? Better to be the turtle than the hare. Better to finish than to start with great busto and a, a gusto and a bang, right? Who cares with what spirit you start? What matters is how you end. So think of Alfred Nobel. Think of your obituary. Think of the end. What matters is how you finish and not just how you begin. Otherwise, it's, it's a quick hoopla for nothing. I, I think of sort of my pep rallies in high school. I think I've told you, General Doug Douglas MacArthur used to have the greatest pep rallies. Homecoming was the loudest high school you'd ever have. And then we had the worst football team that was ever known in America. To give you an idea, I was the starting center of that football team. So that, that should tell you. Every homecoming, unbelievable pep rally, only to be crushed on the field, right? Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. Or this king in the Old Testament, a wicked king, actually had a good proverb. He said, the man who is putting on armor should not boast like the one who's taking it off. Right? You, you shouldn't boast going into battle the way that the man who comes out of battle gets to boast. The end is better than the beginning. The day of death, better than a funeral. If you want wisdom, think long, think far, think to the end. And let it shape your present. Speaking of your present, verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Have you noticed throughout this chapter, the preacher is not a fan of you trying to escape reality. He's not a fan of you trying to escape thinking about death by surrounding yourself with frivolity and silliness and parties. He's also not a fan of you trying to escape hard rebuke by cackling with fools. And here, 
He's not a fan of you escaping the present by vainly glorifying the past. Oh, the good old days. Oh, the glory days. It's almost like he's saying, look, nostalgia can be good, but it can also be a vain way in which you try to escape the past. Because you can't live in the hevel and the frustration of the present moment and the moment that God has assigned you. And so you keep retreating back to when things were so good. Back then, those people, that experience, that moment, that event that you had in the past, that's where it was. And if you could somehow recapture that, then your life would be so great. And the preacher simply wants you to know you're wearing nostalgia glasses. Wasn't the past under the sun as well? Just like the present is? The past too was just like now, life under the sun. But, but for some reason, rather than struggling with the present moment God has, no matter how adverse it is, we think that if we can get back there, it's there. And have you ever noticed, no matter how hard you try to recreate it, it always evades you. You go back to that spot, you try to recreate that moment, you gather all your friends to redo that exact thing, and the it isn't there. The magic seems to have evaded you. C.S. Lewis, because he's brilliant about everything, has a thought about nostalgia. Listen to it, because it's very insightful. He says, if you understand this, what nostalgia is supposed to do is not get you to longingly look backwards into the past. What nostalgia is actually supposed to do is get you to longingly look upwards to the future. Listen to his quote. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. For it was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a far country we have not yet visited. When you experience nostalgia, your heart is longing for a more beautiful person than that you have ever met, or a more beautiful place than that you have ever known, you think you're longing for the past, but the past was never as good as your mind is telling you it was. He's brilliant. And I think if he's right, he's saying, you know what that longing about the past is doing? is creating for you this desire for an it that nothing in the past had. But what it's supposed to do is produce in you a longing for an it that comes from beyond this world. There's nothing under the sun that can meet that magic you're looking for. You could go back to the place with the people to eat the same food, hear the same music, and the it evades you, which just means the it you're looking for isn't found under the sun. And the Christian message is, but thanks be to God, there's one beyond the sun. And thanks be to God, the one beyond the sun came to life under the sun and lived under the hevel of this world with all its frustrations. And this one beyond the sun named Jesus Christ died in our place and rose again and transformed death from being this terrifying thing to being a servant to us, a tutor to us. It doesn't have to terrify us anymore because he defeated the worst. And now that terrifying thing becomes a tutor to train us in wisdom. And thanks be to God, he went back up to beyond the sun. 
And thanks be to God, the Christian message is he will come again and bring with him the world beyond the sun into the world under the sun. There will be the new heavens and the new earth. And then the longings that all of this is producing in your soul will be met and found in him. This is what you should do in your present moment. Not vainly glorify the past, but yearn for the future and yearn for him and know that the one beyond the sun is sovereignly in control of your present moment. This is what he ends with in verses 13 and following. As the passage, this section ends, he praises wisdom in verses 11 to 12 and then in verse 13. He says, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Proverbs, I mean, Ecclesiastes is saying, look through these Proverbs, you know wisdom matters, but wisdom is limited. And in the end, it will not answer all your questions. It won't erase all your frustrations. You can't take that which seems crooked about life and make it all straight you're not going to know why hard things always come. You're not going to get an answer to all your questions. But here's what you can know. God is sovereignly using everything to shape you into the person you and he wants to be in the end. You want a good obituary. You want to not have regrets about that last day. Well, God is sovereignly using all of these things in life to shape you to become that. In the good days when they come from his hand, oh, eat your bread with gladness, drink with joy, sit and laugh with the friends and family and loved ones God pr provides you, receive it as a good gift from his hand. And when the hard days come, no matter how wise you are, you won't know all of it. and You can't straighten out what feels crooked about it. But you can know this, this too is from God. And though my wisdom is limited, he is limitless in his wisdom and he can wisely use hard things to make caterpillars into butterflies. You can trust him to do that. He has turned the worst thing in the world, the death of his own son, Jesus Christ, into the greatest news the world has ever heard. And if he's done that at the center of our faith, he can do that all the way to the edges. He can do that to your life as well. And so we'd say, preacher, we know in Ecclesiastes, death comes and levels everything out and makes everything hevel and pointless. But we believe in one beyond the sun who has overcome death and now has transformed death so it does not terrify us but tutors us so that we might live right now wisely and well, believing in the one beyond the sun. And the preacher would say, amen. That is exactly what I was hoping you would see. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that it would not have gone in one ear and out the other, but instead there'd be something of this that the Spirit would lock onto our hearts that we couldn't shake, that would change us in the present, that we'd be a bit more mature, an inch deeper in our soul, a bit more thoughtful, a bit more discerning about our end, that it would shape our present. There may be something this moment itself your spirit wants to convict us about, deal with us about. Some place in our soul we're letting slide by. We pray today that you would not let us loose of that. And that we would be restless till we find our rest in you. 
Point us to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.